I believe in one holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints, and we are a people who are passionate and driven to be the people that God is calling us to be. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. If you have your Bible with you, would you turn with me please to Matthew chapter 16 this morning as we're looking at verses 13 through 20. While you're turning there, and most of you will find it on page 1524 of the Church Bible, page 1524, Matthew 16. As most of you know, we have been steadily working our way through the Apostles' Creed on Sunday mornings. And last Sunday morning, we began the final section of our studies with I Believe in the Holy Ghost. And today, we come to the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. And we begin with Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ." Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading of His inspired Word. As you know, we have been working our way through the Apostles' Creed Sunday by Sunday, and over the next couple of weeks, we'll draw our series of studies to an end. Now, this morning, we come to what is possibly one of the most understood, or misunderstood rather, phrases in the entire uh, creed. When we say one holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints, what are we actually saying? Because some of you parents and grandparents have come from a Baptist background, and in the middle of a service, you are asked to say the Apostles' Creed, and you get to the one Catholic Church, and you say, we don't believe that. You tell your children and grandchildren, don't say that part. Well, actually, we do believe that, and my Baptist colleagues believe it as well. And what do we mean, what are we actually saying when we say, I believe in one holy Catholic church? And this morning, we will intentionally spend our time looking at why the church is God's greatest idea for humanity. Isn't that an incredible thing to say? You have Calvary, then you have Pentecost, and then third on the list is the church. 
And we tend not to think of the church in that way. We tend to think of the church as a little archaic, out of touch, male, pale, and stale, with not much to offer. But in the purposes of God, it's right towards the top of the list. It's His single greatest idea, flowing directly from Calvary and then Pentecost, where we were last Sunday morning, and today coming to look at the church. But right here, the framers of the Apostles' Creed said, it's so important we put it in there. Over the last few Sundays, we've been looking at the work and life and ministry of Christ. We've been looking at God the Father Almighty. We're looking now, last Sunday morning, at the work of the Holy Spirit, and we've been focusing on the vertical. And today, the Apostles' Creed moves us from the vertical to the horizontal. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now, when we say that, what do we mean? Of course, the church, the spelling of the word there is with a capital C, and it means the church universal. It means that we believe in one holy Catholic or universal church. We believe that as part of the body of Christ here in Greenville, we have so much in common with a church in Uganda or Papua New Guinea, Tokyo, South Africa, Panama, Canada, all over the place, where the gospel has impacted lives and transforms hearts and minds and souls. There's some small groups, some medium-sized groups, and some large groups where God has impacted their lives, drawn them, them to Himself, and made them a part of His church. Now, the concept of the church is not particularly new to us. Last fall, we spent 10 or 12 weeks looking at what does it mean to be a contagious church. And if you were with us, you know we asked some difficult and probing questions, and we asked what does it mean to define our core values? Who are we when we seek to take away everything else except the central essence of our very being? What are our core values? What does it mean to be a secure spiritual home where people have a sense of belonging when they are excited? What does it mean to be a people where worship on Sunday morning is the central part of our entire weekend? Isn't that something? What does it mean to be a people who come on Sunday morning excited, full of expectation, can't wait to worship the living God? A people for whom worship is not so much an activity, but it's a defining part of our identity. That's what it means to be the church. Then in January and February and March, we spent several Sundays in the book of Revelation one of the most difficult books in the Bible to understand. And if you were with us, you remember we probed a little deeper, and we asked some fearless searching questions. We asked, what does it mean to be a church in a downtown context in a 21st century cultural setting? What does that mean? We also asked, what does it mean to be a church who intentionally develop intergenerational engagement and relational connectedness? 
on Sunday mornings, and you know this better than I do, that I will look out and I will see nine-year-olds and 90-year-olds. How do we develop that sense of intergenerational engagement and relational connectedness? How do we prepare and equip ourselves to engage with that 21st century cultural setting? And we teased all of that out during January, February, March. And the morning I remember most was the morning we studied the church in Sardis, a church who didn't think too highly of themselves, but God was calling them to be a church, to be a church whose dreams were greater than their memories. Do you remember that particular study? to be a people whose dreams were greater than their memories, a people who were more focused on who they were becoming than where they had been. And that's difficult in a church setting, and it's difficult for this reason, because as a church, we always enjoy looking back the way. But more often, God calls us to be focused on where we are going. It's comfortable looking back, filled with good memories, happy thoughts, but becoming the people God is calling us to be, whose dreams are greater than their memories, is not an easy thing to do. And in this passage this morning, when Jesus says, I will build my church, those are five of the greatest words in all the gospel. Now, let me say that again, because I suspect that you will find that hard to believe that five of the greatest words in the entire gospel narrative is, I will build my church. And he says it right here. Now, as you look at the passage, what do you discover at verse 13? When they were on their way to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked them a question. Now, Caesarea Philippi was one of the most northerly towns in Upper Galilee, it was part of the major trade route north. It had a multiplicity of temples and places of worship. And if you go there today, you still see some of them are still in existence, dating back to antiquity, of course, and you see the ruins of them. It's a fascinating place to, to see. But let me ask you to step back for a second and look at the wider context of what's happening here. Each of the Gospels, Matthew, well, excuse me, that's not entirely true, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what is called the synoptic Gospels, seen through the same lens or optic. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each of those Gospels change after this incident is recorded in their Gospel. Because up to this point, it's been about the miracles of Jesus. After this point, it is about the teaching of Jesus. And of course, the miracles grant him credence in authenticity and credibility, and so he begins to have much more focus on the teaching. And the wider context of Matthew's gospel is this, that from chapters 8 onward, there are several times in Matthew's gospel where Jesus quite intentionally takes the twelve off on their own and spend significant amount of time with them. I wonder this morning 
If we could interview any of the apostles and say to them, now, tell me, what was the most memorable moment in the three years you had with Christ? What do you think they would say? I wonder if some of them would say, for me, it was the feeding of the 5,000. That was the point where I really understood that when Jesus performed that miracle, he wasn't simply a good teacher, but that he was the incarnation of the living God. Others might say, well, for me, it was the morning we stood outside the tomb of Lazarus, and I heard Jesus say, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. We couldn't believe it. Utterly spectacular. That was the moment for me. I wonder if someone else would say, mm-hmm, yeah, I remember all of that, but the moment for me was the cleansing of the temple. When he went into the temple and he turned over the tables of the money changers and he drove them out, he was so disgusted and angry with all that they were doing. That was the moment for me. But I also suspect that on the list of each of the apostles, it would be something we touched on last Sunday morning. I think several of them would say, do you remember the night we sat down beside the Sea of Galilee and there was a fire? We talked into the early hours of the morning. Do you remember the times we laughed together? We listened to his teaching and we heard his prayer for us and the moments when we engaged him in conversation, and he took us to a deeper level, and we would enter into dialogue and discussion, and he would teach us how to apply the Scriptures to our life. Do you remember those moments? Those are memorable moments. That's the context of this passage. They're walking together towards Caesarea Philippi, and he engages them in dialogue and discussion and the application of the Scriptures. Now, hold that thought in your mind, and let me bring those lessons forward to today. Because when the gospel impacts the heart and mind and soul of an individual, God never calls that individual into learning in isolation. Never. He calls them to be part of a community, and we know it as the church. But please hear me when I say this, and let me be as tender and gentle and as careful as I can, but let me say it nonetheless, that if you are ever to grow in your faith, if you are ever to be the person that God is calling you to be, Sunday morning is not enough. Information, inspiration, great place to start, but it's not enough leaving on a Sunday morning enthused, encouraged, inspired with information is great. But if you ever to be the disciple He's calling you to be, He is calling you into community at a deeper level. Now, what does that mean? Well, allow me to be as practical as possible when I say this, that when you learn in community, Nine-tenths of the time, it means in Sunday school 
or a ladies' Bible study group, or a men's group, or a community group. Folks, if you are not enrolled in a small Bible study group, however that manifests itself in your life, you really are losing out. Those are the memorable moments. Those are the moments when you engage with God at a spiritual level, but you don't always get a chance to do that. Secondly, and you're going to hear more about this as, as a church, we're looking more and more at discipleship as we move towards the fall. And in community, you find the spiritual engaging with the living God. Secondly, you're going to be exposed to the experiential, where someone else in the group will say, do you know, when we read that passage minutes ago, it reminded me of something that happened in work this past week. And they go on to talk about an experience they had as a Christian in a working environment and how it impacted their life and changed them. The spiritual, the experiential, and you'll also have the relational. Because inevitably, when you're in a small community group and someone says, you know, I'm really struggling with, and then describe the issue you might be the one who said, you know, I had something very similar a few years back. Now, remember at that time, God powerfully speaking to me and leading and guiding and directing, and that's what happened to me. There's that relational dynamic. You are growing as a group. You're growing in community. You're learning. You're entering into dialogue and discussion and application, all of what we saw moments ago in Matthew 16. He calls us into community. That's where we find intergenerational engagement. That's where we find relational connectedness. Folks, please hear me when I say this, and this is a staggering statistic. 75% of the folks who come into my office with a spiritual problem are not engaged in a Sunday school class or a small group. It's as high as that. They're trying to live the Christian life in their own strength, and they've come up against a difficulty. One of the first things I encourage them to do is get into a small group where you can grow and develop and mature and learn from others, where you can, a place where you can engage with the Scriptures, a place where you make those memorable moments. That's what's going on here. There's no question this was a memorable moment for Peter. When Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon. This was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Talk about a memorable moment for Peter. Right there. And if you go further down the passage, what does he say to him? Verse 18, and I tell you, Peter, excuse me, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, what does he mean, I will build my church? Well, let me suggest this. There's only two places in Matthew's entire gospel that you find the word church. One is here in Matthew 16, the other is Matthew 18. You find it all over the book of Acts, especially in those early chapters, and we saw that last week, but only twice in Matthew's gospel. 
And when Jesus says, I will build my church, those are, as we've said, some of the greatest words in all of the gospel because they are words filled with power filled with divine, creative power. I will build my church. And I cannot help but wonder, after the death of Christ, the birthing of the infant church, and some of the early apostles found themselves being martyred for their faith, some crucified, some crucified in an ex-formation, others going to the Colosseum, others stoned to death, some burnt at the stake. And I wonder if their dying thought was this, that they could hear in the back of their mind Jesus saying, and I will build my church. It certainly didn't feel like it in the first century or the second century. But by the third century, 15% of the Roman Empire had come to a saving faith in Christ. Millions upon millions upon millions. It started with one individual and it's impacted that individual and then their families and then their communities and then their neighbors and the gospel spread right across the Mediterranean world. It got as far even, and you'll find this hard to believe, it even got as far as Scotland where we established Presbyterianism. That's our great claim to fame. And it came... How? Through the Roman Empire. An empire who initially were persecuting the church and the sovereign purposes of God became his instrument of the spread of the gospel. I will build my church. On a Wednesday night, when I find myself wandering up to the third floor and I see dozens and dozens and dozens of teenagers coming on Wednesday nights, parking here on a Wednesday night is just a nightmare. You can't park. The place is so busy. And when I walk in and see kids having fun and then opening up their Bibles and learning in community, I hear those words, and I will build my church. Someone comes into my office and asks for a time when we can meet and I can marry them, and I ask them, about why they want to get married and what do they anticipate their life being like. And eventually I ask them about their faith and I say, now tell me a little about your relationship with Christ. And they talk of a moment when Christ breaks into their lives and they discover His love and His grace and His sustaining of their lives by the work of His Holy Spirit. In the back of my mind I hear, and I will build my church. I visit an elderly person in hospice, and I look at them and say, is there anything I can do for you? And they'll say, Richard, I'm ready to go and be with the Lord. And I hear those words, and I will build my church. And someone quietly, privately comes to see me and explains they were wrestling with a sin that they never thought they could conquer or have victory over. And then they tell me how God spectacularly strengthened and enabled them and took them to a whole new level. And I will build my church. And I hear a Supreme Court who redefines marriage in a heartbeat. I hear of the minimizing and marginalizing of Christian values and standards. And I panic. And I feel threatened and fearful, and uncertain. And then I remember, and I will build my church. No wonder they're five of the greatest words 
in all of the gospel. And when you find yourself in that great last glorious day when Christ returns and the culmination of all of history will take place and there's a new heavens and a new earth, remember His promise, and I will build my church. And His church is built in small, gentle, baby steps as He refines us and shapes us and fashions us to be more Christ-like, and He does it in community and not in isolation. And I will build my church. This past uh, Wednesday and Thursday, I flew out to Colorado Springs for a couple of days. I was participating in the installation service of a friend at First Presbyterian Church in Colorado Springs. And when I was introduced and spoke on Friday night, the entire congregation were surprised that I did not have a southern accent. <laughs> I had been horse riding on Friday morning, and I asked the wrangler, who was the trail herd, I asked him, or the trail guide rather, uh, what does it mean to be a cowboy? And he showed me how to ride a horse, and I had such a great time. And I came back trying to assimilate to the far west. And my family gave me a hard time because every five minutes I would punctuate the conversation with <laughs> But I tried to assimilate. And when I was there, people would say to me, now, Richard, First Presbyterian Church in Greenville, what are they like as a church? And I would try and be coy and say they're very similar to the church here. And then some of the elders and the associate pastors wanted to know in detail what are we like as a church. I found myself saying they are ordinary, everyday people. Secretaries and social workers, doctors, dietitians, bankers, builders, carpenters, carpet layers, lawyers, lecturers, house builders, and homemakers, but a people who are intent on becoming a people whose dreams are more important than their memories, a people who are growing and maturing and developing in their faith, and they are doing so in community a people for whom, as we said earlier, Sunday morning is the centerpiece of their entire weekend, a people for whom worship is not an activity, but a defining part of their identity, and a people who can say, I believe in one holy Catholic church and the communion of saints and we are a people who are passionate and driven to be the people that God is calling us to be. Amen? Amen. Let us pray together. Father, thank You for this spectacular passage of Scripture this morning. We ask, please, O oh God, as we continue to respond to Your call in our lives, that we would be a people growing in community. We would be a people who seek to engage with You, the living God, who seek to be relational with others, instructional in terms of learning from the truth of Your Word. 
and a people who seek to be, a people who speak into a 21st century cultural setting. Father, hear our prayers, for we ask them in and through the wonderful name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Celebrate our nation's freedom at First Presbyterian Church's Red, White, and Q on Sunday, June 26th in downtown Greenville. A barbecue lunch is offered at noon following patriotic services at 8.30, 10.45, and 11. More details at firstpresgreenville.org.